Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Another thin man is over. The good are often alone. Mommy, this is Creeps Binder. Remember? Creeps? Mm. Creeps, yeah, Creeps, you remember? Nick sent me up the river. Oh, well, it's nice you don't feel bad about it. Well, why should I? Gee, it took a genius to outsmart me. <laughs> you want to touch me? I got rid of all those reporters. What'd you tell them? Told them we were out of scotch. What a gruesome thought. <laughs> Andy, it's the thin man, but not the next one. It's another one. <laughs> it's another. Yeah, another thin man. Uh, here we go. We're back with uh, Powell and Loy, and I love them. I love them. I love them. I am Will Ferrell in Elf. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> they are so funny <laughs> and so fun. I had never seen this movie. And um, coming off uh, hot on the heels of the next Thin Man, it was a delight to come back to uh, Palinoy doing th- this character. I have hot, feelings. hot on the heels of after the Thin Man. 
of course, after the Thin Man. <laughs> what, this is the problem with their naming scheme. It's already rearing its ugly, ugly head. <laughs> Which Thin Man is this? Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. All right. So that's where we are with the Thin Man. What do you think of it? Uh, I I like it. I don't like it as much as I as the first two films. Everything felt a little tamer, and I don't know if that's just because they were parents now. But like the drinking was, uh, there was still some drinking, but it, there was like never drunkenness. No, and yeah. and you know, and the comedy also didn't strike me as at the same level as the previous two films. Like, it had its moments, but it never made me laugh out loud. I think that's a fair assessment. Although, I have to say, there were still some moments that felt shocking to me. When they're walking through the woods and find the, the sliced-up dog, that felt shocking to me for yeah. this movie. So, yeah. it was the, it took funny swings. And I also think that there were issues with the actual caper itself. Like, I, I have opinions about it. But I find William Powell and Myrna Loy, I am so on team uh, 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 these two. <laughs> Right, Like, I just love Nick and Nora, and I love spending time with them. So at this point, even a movie that isn't as good as the first two movies, I still just enjoy hanging out with these people. These are two people that I would love to have uh, dinner and drinks with. That's what I'm saying. Do you like Nick and Nora better than Dick and Dora? (laughs) Do you remember Dick and Dora? (laughs) You should. You like that movie a lot more than I do. Wait, who was Dick and Dora? Why can't I remember what you're talking about? That's the spoof version of the characters in murder by death oh (laughs) that's okay i did like that movie a lot uh, more than you did for sure and um yes there i i think i like nick and dora more i think that's safe to say it was was it maggie smith and um oh that's a test david niven david niven yeah yeah dick and dora charleston charleston Uh, well, uh, another Thin Man, when it was released back in 1939, it passed the certification. <laughs> Once again, uh, this is the period where they just plain up pass. Okay, can I, before we start... Sure. Uh, I want to just say a couple things that uh, of which I was unaware. Well, it's your special day, Andy. You should do whatever you want. First off, W.S. Van Dyke is actually W.S. Van Dyke the second. And I didn't know that until the credits of this film, because I don't think in the previous two films, I think he was just credited as W.S. Van Dyke. Correct. Like, was I crazy with that? No, I don't think you're crazy. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so I, because this one came up, W.S. Van Dyke, uh, the second and one, it's not junior, it's the second, which is very rare to see. And so I was a little perplexed. And so I actually had to go to IMDb and look him up. And lo and behold, he actually is Woodbridge Strong Van Dyke, the second. And uh, that is, that is, uh, in fact, his full name. It's just the in the film world, he so often went by W.S. Van Dyke, I suppose, that that's just how he's often called, even though there are times like this where he's credited as W.S. Van Dyke the second. Isn't that interesting? That's yeah. interesting. Are you how are you how do you have any seconds, thirds in your family lineage? No, that's very interesting. I don't either. But we ha- I had to look this up because uh, our our friend Tommy Handsome 
the third. There are actually there are rules about this. Do you know what the rules are? Well, I do only because we talked about them on our other show, Marvel Movie Minute. <laughs> but why don't you tell everybody about the rules? I honestly, I was there's trying a to rule do a regarding... casual segue because you were involved in that conversation. I was giving you an opportunity to actually entree that conversation. Well, no, because I thought one thing that we didn't talk about in that conversation that I thought perhaps you were going to bring up is juniors versus seconds, because that never came up. We were talking more about thirds and how, (laughs) surprising all of us, apparently there's a rule that if you're a third, and you, you can only be a third if all three of the generations are alive, first, second, and third. And if first dies, then second becomes first, and third actually becomes second. That was a bonkers rule that none of us had ever heard of. It's crazy. Um, so thank Miss Manners for that. But was there a junior versus second rule? Yes, there is. A, well, there's a junior versus second rule. Absolutely. So junior is used for a baby boy who has the same name as his father, while second can be used across like skipping generations. So there can be a second, even if the father's name isn't the same as the son's. The son what? could be named after the grandfather and be a second. That is that's the rule. A junior relationship is only father son. A second third can be across generations. Wow. What do you think about that? That is interesting. That is really interesting. Okay. well, they do also say, however, back to this whole like death in the family thing that we discovered, that if a junior would have been a junior and is born after the death of the father then it isn't a junior at all. It's immediately a second. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, well, I I guess this wouldn't necessarily apply because W.S. Van Dyke's father died the day after he was born. Oh, I see. But that shouldn't. Yeah, so he would have been a 24-hour junior. That's right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, anyway, that's name stuff. I did not notice that that was changed uh, between seconds and nothing in these films. Maybe he also read Miss Manners' book between the production of these two movies. Well, it'll be interesting to see moving forward which of the future films ends up being W.S. Van Dyke versus W.S. Van Dyke the second. The second. Yeah. And when he becomes the first. Yeah. W.S. Van Dyke, since we're on the W.S. Van Dyke train, Mm -hmm. just a few other things. His nickname? One Take Woody. Yes. One take Woody, uh, because he lived up to his sobriquet one take Woody by steadfastly adhering to his credo of shooting each scene as quickly and efficiently as possible. Uh, he directed um, over 90 different things, and apparently because of the way he worked, he ended up saving the studios tons of money. So, uh, you know, I mean, he was one of those guys that uh, that worked well in the studio system. Sadly, and we'll talk about this as we get to the end of this series, because he doesn't direct the last film, because he was diagnosed with heart disease and cancer, and because of that, he ended up committing suicide in February 1943. Oof. Well, uh, that is one bit of sadness. The second, back to your point about One Take Woody, this was complicated because of William Powell's situation at the time. He was not healthy and uh, was dealing with severe rectal cancer at the time and had was was dealing with a, he had a colostomy bag. And that I mean, all of those things that he was dealing with put a severe strain on his ability to commit to 
uh, one take Woody's schedule. And uh, he was down to uh, six hour workdays uh, negotiated, which was which was something that nobody wanted. But he was just not able to Powell was just not able to live up to to that, which definitely puts a, a bit of a strain on on uh, Van Dyke's process. And not only that, but and I didn't know this about uh, William Powell, but he had, uh, gosh, what year was it? Uh, It was after this series started. I think it was 1935. Actually, that's what it was. He he made his first picture with Gene Harlow and they clicked and became engaged. And then a couple years later, they were filming Double Wedding or he was filming Double Wedding. Harlow became ill. And uh, taken to the hospital and died, and her death uh, put him in quite the tailspin. And uh, you know he had to take six weeks off of the movie that he was working on, and had to travel. He didn't make a movie for a year because of that. So all of that happened right uh, between these two movies. Uh, I think that happened. I want to say it must have been after because Double Wedding he did with Myrna Loy. Um, after the um, another Thin Man, the one we talked about last week, but then all and then they took a break from that, and then he took a year off, and then dealing with the rectal cancer and everything. I mean, he had a very very difficult time, and that's why if you watch the trailer for this particular film, it actually like welcomes him back to the screen, and that was kind of a surprise. And that's that seeing the trailer is what led me down this rabbit hole. Of, like, what happened to William Powell? And yeah, it's I mean it's yeah. a couple uh, of hard a, years in there. Yeah, very very difficult time for him. So. And you know, how much of that do you think has to play into just the performance? Like I I go back and forth on on whether or not the strain of his personal life was impacting the kind of humor he was able to portray on on screen versus what was written on the page. Like was this just a situation where uh, a talented man's exhaustion got in the way of delivering what the intended message was for the film. Like, I, there's there's some of that. Like, when it feels like some of the comedy didn't live up to the other two movies, how much of that do you think was him struggling? Uh, I think that there's definitely something there. I mean, it's the same. You know, it's it's Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett again writing the script yeah. based on the characters by Dashiell Hammett. So, in fact. It's loosely based on the story of the farewell murder that uh, Dashiell Hammett wrote. So, I mean, so it's the same team. And again, we talked about uh, W.S. Van Dyke directing again. So I don't know. I mean, I just I didn't feel like the comedy was necessarily there anyway. Is that because they were adapting this other story, the farewell murder and kind of putting it into this thin man world? Or is it because William Powell was not feeling as as energetic to go do stuff. I mean, he didn't seem like he was moving as much. Like he had a lot of a lot more walking and looking um, that I that I noticed this time. So I don't know. It's it's interesting to to I guess think about now, like how much of this particular performance is affected by everything that had been going on with him. The the other thing that I have an issue with in this particular movie that I didn't have an issue with in the last film was the mystery itself. Since you dropped Hammett, um, we need to talk about Hammett because he was uh, notoriously unreliable to the studio. And, and in, in fact, just the following year ends up selling the rights to the thin man to the studio outright. He was a drunk and felt like and, and to me, this story felt his his machinations going into Hackett and Goodrich's pen didn't live up to the last two movies. I I felt like this was this was kind of a, a weaker mystery. How how'd you how'd the mystery hit you? 
Yeah. First of all, as I was watching it, I realized, uh, oh, I had seen this one before. Um, back when we were doing our series on films from 1939, I saw that there was this film that had also been released from 1939. So that's when I watched After the Thin Man and Another Thin Man, just to kind of like get a sense of the Thin Man world at this time in 1939. And so I had seen this but i'd largely forgotten it and i guess that kind of spoke to me of of the sense of the story and even with the mystery like i was like (laughs) yeah and again spoiler alert with these shows we're going to be really um (laughs) spoiling the hell out of these uh murder mysteries but um i i kind of pinned it pretty easy uh from the beginning as to who done it oh it's the girl but you're right. There was a lot of other machinations going on with Church and his whole story. And then you had the uh, the disappearing nanny and things like that that didn't tie up as cleanly as the past uh, characters did in the other stories. That that was exactly my my feel. Like it just felt it. It felt thin, Andy, just like a thin man. I regret that. I regret that. There were things that I thought were fun and funny. Like, I liked the baby party. I think that's a goofy, goofy way to live up to the level of humor of the past movies, having all the thugs come in with all their babies and uh, having one of them uh, renting a baby for a buck a day. Like, those those (laughs) kinds of things felt like super narratively frivolous and were on the level of the the dog romance story in the in the second film like i i just thought that was enough to give me a superficial laugh in the end and then it became kind of a uh you know we go back to some of the similar stages of the other movie where we have you know powell you know pacing an apartment quietly looking for things looking for holes in walls and plaster again this time uh, a bullet hole and and i thought that was i thought that was really fun stuff but a little bit played like uh, we we've been down this this particular road you're right i liked the bits of powell doing his detective work exploring looking around in the room like when he was exploring that the one apartment and those guys came in like there were a lot of those bits that they worked for me the issues that i that kind of tie into a lot of these problems that we had are things like suddenly these two guys crawling through the window. And there's just, there's really Ugh. never any context about yes. any of these what guys. Like that? there's those two guys, there's the guys that come into the, uh, into the, you know, cabana club. And this happens a number of times with these people. And it's all written off as just kind of an out in that final conversation about how church and, Vogel had their own men kind of watching Nick as he was doing stuff. And it's just like, it just, I don't know. It just was like, okay, so now you just have a bunch of random thugs running around and it just, it kind of confused the matter a lot. Yeah, I I think so too. Um, It, it definitely made it harder to trace back the, the pieces of the story that lead to the final mystery, solving the final mystery. And I think that's, that's the, the point you were making earlier that it just, it's just not as satisfying because of all of these threads that don't make a lot of sense even on rewatch to me. Yeah, so, right, right, right. Uh, okay, well, now that we've done that, how do you want to walk through the rest of the story? Uh, okay, so we talked about the plot. I guess let's just talk about the characters a little bit. So first, we could just talk more about Nick and Nora as far as they're a couple. They, She's, again, 
Well, and we should say they're back in New York. They're over in Long Island now. So, I mean, they're kind of bouncing all over the country. I'm not sure. Um, it well, didn't it's seem like any year. particular reason. Um, well, it had been a year since he was born. He was almost his first birthday. I mean, his first birthday happens in the film pretty much. So, and the end of the last film, they're just pregnant. So, I don't know, you know, a year and a half or so. And, but but again, so they're back in, in New York. I don't know. I, I don't get much of a sense as far as like the, the moving forward of their relationship. It's fine. They both seem parental. They're definitely, you know, of money where they have nannies and everyone pretty much doing all of the baby care. And she kind of still wants to help Nick. And he kind of still does his things where he tricks her to leave her behind. You know, and so I don't know. I guess I guess as far as the way that their relationship is depicted, I still love the two of them on screen. I love how they're portrayed. So I don't know. I don't know if it's a good question or a starting point about where do we stand with them? I, I think it's a I actually do think it's a good question. And the question for me is, should I have higher expectations for the evolution of their marriage and their relationship across all of these movies? Because right now they feel very much like sort of a James Bond, right? Like every time we come in, we have this character who's sort of frozen in time going through a caper of some sort. There there are all there's the wit and the booze, less so in this movie. There's the sarcasm between them, the jokes, the japes. And they're both kind of contributing to their relationship in pretty consistent ways from the first three movies. I haven't seen the rest of them. I don't know what to expect. Should I, by this movie, have higher expectations that they're going to that, that we get any feeling of change between these characters, or is that just not what I'm in for for the Thin Man series? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to gauge um, what we're going to expect. I will say something that I, I can't say it's new to this particular film, but something that I did enjoy is there's it. It depicts a, a relationship that I feel there is a sense of maturity to the way that they handle their relationship where they understand, you know, sometimes there might be a cute girl who thinks that Nick is cute. Sometimes there might be a hot guy that thinks, uh, that thinks Nora is, is cute. And, but they handle all that. Well, gaggle of dudes hanging out with her at the club, but it's like, there's this, there's this level of confidence and trust in their relationship that I do really enjoy. And I enjoy the way that they play that those moments uh, work really well. And I thought it was kind of cute how Nora in this particular film latches on early to some former uh, girlfriends or lovers that Nick had had. Like she discovers these names and she drops them at this particular club as a way to just kind of see if she can uh, get under his skin at all. And I just, I liked the way that their relationship had those moments because it never felt like they were concerned about a weakening of what they had. It just always felt like, you know, a further opportunity to kind of explore their lives together. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. And I think, you know, p- part of that answers my question. Like, m- I don't think I should have much higher of an expectation that their relationship is going to become more sophisticated because, <laughs> in fact, it's exactly probably where it needs to be. But corollary question, does the baby screw it up in any way for you? I read a little bit of commentary that suggested that introducing the baby made the humor a little bit less biting. And maybe the fact that there is a baby in the picture now meant that 
some of the risks they would even push against the Hayes Code, right, at the at this time and, you know, might have restricted some of the some of the boozing, some of the consistent drunkenness on on behalf of Nick. There's definitely something to that. I mean, just the fact that he is drunk, like visibly drunk, never in this film yeah. might speak to the fact that per the Hayes Code, they wanted to make sure that they were depicting the parents as competent people who weren't going to be just drunk around their kid all the time, but who were actually parenting the child. And so that might be something that came from all that. I wonder. I mean, I, I think that's a that is an interesting um, that's an interesting sort of angle. Now, it does lead for me, speaking of other things that, you know, are depicted on on film, the old man, right? The colonel. Right. I mean, I liked him. I thought he was fun <laughs> and funny. Um, I do think it's interesting that they take this old guy and make it seem like he's crazy. Like this is a gaslighting storyline, right? At, when we first meet him. Is that That's your a sense? weird storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This now that we're getting into the caper, this is part of what makes it feel like a very strangely cobbled together story, mystery. And I struggled a little bit with him and the way he was the way he was portrayed, because I he could very well have been going into dementia. Right. But they never would have talked about that on screen. No, it really boils down to this weird, uh, weird logic that church has to basically tell the colonel that he has these dreams and they always come true or when he has the third one it's like a vision and when the third one happens it always comes true and like he tells him that like i see you die i see you die and oh no i just had the third dream that must mean you're going to die and it's like what and the fact that the colonel buys into this nonsense is like that was a a strange leap for the story to take as far as like this is this is what we're buying into as far as as the foundation for these characters and the fact that church has this whole plan as we kind of get to the end and their whole reveal about how church has this plan put together where he is going to use all of this to create basically um, faux alibis so that, you know, if or so when he does potentially have somebody kill the colonel, that he's completely covered. And I'm just like, God, this is like, what? what is this strange plot that we're getting? That was that was pretty strange to me. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. Like that whole idea that we're going to make this guy think he's think he's nuts to deliver these alibis to get away. I mean, it was just Super, super convoluted. I will say, though, I do like C. Aubrey Smith as the uh, as the the colonel. He's fantastic. And like you just do a scroll down his credits and see how many he, uh, uh, you know, non military officers, knights, earls he's played. He's always the stereotypical kind of Englishman and is really fun to to watch. And his mustache is just perfect. And I mean, everything about sort of how he portrays the character on screen is great. I just feel like it's it's done cheaply. Yeah, I, I don't think it does his character any service either. Especially because in the end, like, how is it? It, it, it doesn't even tie in to any of the actual plot as to his killing, which is completely not related to any of that. So, you know, it's it's like Lois, his, uh, the colonel's daughter, was almost using all of that to her advantage to kind of speed things up so she could get the basically her inheritance early. Yeah, <laughs> right. What a, what a banal, like, twist. 
Like that is yeah. the, the cheapest sort of low hanging fruit that that you could take. And then there were these two guys, the two like other guys that were hanging around. One was the the boyfriend, and one was the crush suitor. And I can't remember their names off the top of my head. Dudley Dudley was her fiance. Yes, and Freddie was he was the colonel's secretary, but he was he wasn't from money. But he's the one who secretly had a crush on Lois and wanted to take care of her. And he's the one who would stand up for her, whereas Dudley would not stand up for her. And so that that was kind of a difference of those two characters. Uh, they, again, were fairly uh, milk toast, uh, though I kept calling them the Hardy Boys in my head because they felt they looked like the Hardy Boys to me. Well, Patrick, uh, Patrick Knowles played Dudley. Uh, we I don't remember if we talked about him much, but he played Will Scarlet in The Adventures of Robin Hood. So certainly something that we did cover on the show. And uh, Tom Neal. Yeah, Tom Neal, uh, we talked about in, uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite noir films. He was in uh, Detour. 1945. Maybe that's why I, he looks like a hardy boy. I think everybody in Detour looked like a hardy boy. <laughs> to a certain extent, you get these movies put together and you have to create a big cast of of all sorts of savory and unsavory characters that can potentially be the killer and the rest of them all need to be kind of crafted in a way where they end up being the red herring. And that's essentially what we get with all of this. And Dudley is, I, I don't know if he's ever considered a red herring, but, you know, it doesn't matter because he ends up being the second murder. And so then we've got the two bodies and we're trying to figure out, okay, who killed these two? And so, you know, it does set something up, but it never, I don't know, it, I just, I felt like those characters were a lot less interesting than anyone we had in the last film. I think that's a great point, because the degree to which the movie is successful is the degree to which all of those characters ends up feeling like they fit. And that's the problem that I have here, even in the last movie, where it was just a bunch of old people. By the time everything is resolved, I felt like I understood where everybody fit. And and I don't have that feeling here. One that we do get back in this movie that was not in the last movie, but was in the first one is Lieutenant Guild. Yeah. Lieutenant Guild is back and uh, played by Nat Pendleton. I feel like he's degraded since the first movie. I feel like what happened is because he seemed a little more in the first movie, you're getting to know your characters and and he had a lot more doubts about Nick in the first movie. And so you kind of buy into the fact that this is a cop and, you know, Nick is coming in as this detective who is kind of getting in the cop's way and you get more back and forth between them. By the time we get to this film, it's like everybody who knows who Nick is like kowtows to him. Like, Oh, you're just the best Nick and you never get anything wrong, Nick, or we'll do whatever you need, Nick. And that's kind of what happened to Lieutenant Guild. It was kind of a strange shift for his character that, uh, you know, just uh, there's not as much there. It's a lot more flat. Nat Pendleton was a, was a uh, wrestler he ended up playing a lot of what are referred to as dim bulb characters. That's what I felt like we got here. We got more of a character in the first movie, and he became a, quote, dim bulb character in this in this movie. He he was uh, much, much more of a transparently fawning dummy in yeah. this movie. I didn't yeah. I didn't care for it. Otto Kruger plays the other cop. Uh, he's the he's the one who's now working on the case. He's uh, or not he's not a cop. He's he's the assistant DA, and 
would you say that he's kind of now filling in as Lieutenant Guild? I mean, I, I don't know if I guess, I guess I'm not really sure uh, how to if that's the right way to phrase the question, because it's like, is he there to basically do what Lieutenant Guild was doing in the first movie as somebody who had a little more doubt or or does he end up being kind of like uh, Lieutenant Guild Jr.? <laughs> you know, I, I wonder I because part of the doubt in this movie is framed in the doubt that we get when he shows up at the estate. Everybody pulls a gun on Nick and Nora. Everybody pulls a gun. And there is always some sort of a rescue that, oh, no, 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 we can trust him, we can trust him. Somebody always has to has to come to the rescue. But that is such superficial doubt about his character, right? It's still doubt on screen, I get it, but it's superficial. And I think what the where the last movie uh, plays is... And, and the first movie, for sure, is where characters of weight, characters of importance actually have doubt about Nick Charles and about what he's doing. And that was the, the police. That was the attorney. That was whoever it was. I feel like we have less of a character to actually test Nick Charles. And maybe that's because we're in movie three. Maybe we're just supposed to know. Maybe we've just we've defined that Nick Charles is, um, you know, he is the investigator par excellence and that now he's just a fish out of water in this little place. Once everybody gets to know him, everybody already knows what he's capable of. And we're just supposed to buy into that. We don't need anybody testing the veracity of his claims or of his skill. Maybe that's where we are. I found it a little empty. Well, and maybe to our point earlier in the conversation, like maybe this is what William Powell needed as he was getting back into film, something that was a little easier on him that wasn't going to tap him out and didn't require as much work. Yeah. And maybe that's why he's kind of, you know, everything is kind of the way it is where, you know, he's just there for all these other characters. Yeah, I I don't know why. I I don't know why that is. But I think you're right. Back to... um, to Otto, I think there is something to that. Um, the, the fact that he is he is here playing that particular sort of nemesis, it's just not as strong, you know, so I struggle with that. Just wanting more. Uh, there is the other goofy guy, though. Um, who is it uh, the, with the glasses? What's his name? Diamondback? Vogel. That's Diamondback Vogel, yeah. What'd you think of him? Uh, well, again, it was, an, it was designed to be kind of a a, a character who you definitely had suspicion of. And then it just kind of, I don't know, his, his character, like his whole storyline just kind of like fizzles a bit at the end. I'm like, okay, well, it wasn't that exciting. He's an interesting character, but he's always kind of designed to be the one who seems like the baddest of them all. Right, right. You know who he is though, Andy? Like, it feels like we've got, we've got a, a this character shaped hole in these movies because in the last movie it was the doctor who was drugging what's her name to keep her upstairs right it was the 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 doctor who was drugging the cousin on the payroll of aunt Catherine or whatever her name was like he was a character who was totally underused could have been a real villain in this thing like he could have really been a part of it but he just was kind of relegated to a side character i felt the same way about diamondback i thought it was a such a cool character design like they made such interesting choices it was it was almost uh you know general tot right in in indiana jones like i felt like that is an iconic potentially iconic character from this movie that was 
woefully underused. Like, what? let's talk about why he's diabolical. His name is Diamondback. Why is his name Diamondback? And, yeah, and right. we never got any of that. No, got very little, very little with him. It's frustrating. Yeah. You know, and then you get the the friends like Harry Belliver is creeps who we meet. There's always that character. This is something else that we've seen in the last couple films where uh, it's a criminal or, or a former criminal who's in some capacity trying to go straight and they are, they've taken a job, but they're not doing a very good job at it. And they keep falling into their old ways until they realize <laughs> that it's Nick and or Nora that they're, they're, you know, stealing from. And in this particular case, that's exactly what happens where creeps, is looking at stealing stuff from the house and then he realizes that it's Nick's place and then he's like, Oh, I don't why I guess so much for this costume and he takes yeah. off his bellhop uniform. <laughs> just like what a weird set of side characters that they end up having. But those are the fun ones. And and you know, I liked Harry Belliver. He plays the character uh, you know, I mean he was in the hot rock. I don't know if you remember Rollo the bartender, but he was uh he was in that. So it's kind of fun to see somebody on such opposite ends of his career. For sure. Um, but uh, like those characters that you have, I did enjoy probably more than and maybe it's just because their characters didn't have to get tied into such complex story threads that seemed to kind of fizzle and go nowhere. Yeah. Well, and to that end, we should talk about uh, Phil Church and Dum Dum. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and Smitty. Right. Right. The three of them. Uh, because they, uh, again, that entire sort of storyline ends up being kind of a MacGuffin. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, Church is, uh, we tar- talked about his plan already, how he was uh, creating these fake visions to create, uh, to make alibis for himself. I don't know, the whole thing was so peculiar. He had Smitty uh, and Dum Dum working with him. But then, as it as we find out, that Lois... Uh, the colonel's daughter has created this alternate life for herself uh, where she actually is in love with church and they've been kind of doing a lot of this stuff. And I, I don't know. It was again, such a convoluted story. And I mean, the actors were fine. I thought their performances worked yeah. and everything. I just, I, they all get mired in the complexities of that, of the plot with, with church and his visions that, you know, for me, just made it harder to harder to deal with. I did like seeing um, Abner Biberman um, as, as in the role of Dum Dum, and it was a it's kind of a weird uh, role, you know, with the accent and uh, it's it's just a little bit a little bit touchy. But he has been in he, he's one of the faces um, that it it feels like have have kind of been around for a while in some of these. Um, you know some of these classic films that he just was very very familiar to me um and it was just neat to to see him in this you know in this old movie i his, he started his career not long before this i mean it was his uh first film was 1936 ended up doing i think she's eight or ten movies before he hit another thin man he was in the roaring 20s and his girl friday and uh um south of pago pago golden gloves um he's just in a lot of these kinds of studio pictures and well just in 1939 alone it looks like he was in 11 films yeah it's that crazy yeah just bonkers Um, in all of these movies and i think i'm not sure i haven't seen all of them but i i'd be surprised if they were um huge roles 
Uh, well, like I mean, one. yeah, um, one, two, three of them he's uncredited. So obviously he was just there as a character in the in there at some point. Yeah. So that was fun. And of course, uh, Sheldon Leonard, as um, uh, he plays Church. Right. Uh, and he ended up doing a lot of production on uh, as an executive producer, eventually, on a lot of classic shows, Andy Griffith and I Spy and Gomer Pyle and um, um, Dick Van Dyke. He, he's. Yeah, yeah. So he's been uh, he he ended up changing gears uh, pretty dramatically. Yeah. Danny Thomas show two hundred and eighty nine episodes producer. Wow. Yeah, it's a long run. Well, and then you get someone like Marjorie Maine, who's a fantastic character actress, coming in as the I don't know the landlady of the apartment block where Lois has this apartment rented yeah. under a, <laughs> under funny? a pseudonym. And she's just, I mean, she's just always great. And she's just one of those faces that you just know from being in so many of these films of the era. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I guess she's also somebody that, I mean, you may not have ever seen like Mon Pa Kettle and any of the Mon Pa Kettle films, but you likely have seen an image of her as Ma Kettle in those films because that kind of became such a huge part of her life from like the forties through the fifties where she was just that character. And like every other movie that she was making was another Mon Pa Kettle movie. That's funny. I don't think I've ever seen any of those. I don't think I have either, but I, it's like you say Ma Kettle. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's her. And uh, so she's just one of those people who's just, she does this sort of role. Like she was the dude ranch owner in the women, which we talked about um, a while ago. Um, she's in one of our family, like a, a, one of the musical favorites that we just love meet me in St. Louis. And uh, so, yeah, she's just she's in tons of stuff. So she's just a great character actress who pops up and does her job well. And again, it's those sorts of characters in this who I gravitate to more than some of these actors who are in the more complex, complicated stories like Church. Asta is back. We don't have a family story with Asta the dog, but I just I I can't believe I hadn't done this before. But um, Asta uh, got quite a lot of work. And Asta was actually Skippy, we should say. Between 1932 and 1945. Yes, Asta was credited as Skippy, uncredited um, for most of his career. Thin Man, after the Thin Man, he's credited, it looks like, as Asta, until he was credited as Skippy. (laughs) Topper takes a trip. But this is a dog that got work. 23 films. You know, we haven't really talked about Lois. Uh, Virginia Gray played Lois as the daughter, as the the person who ends up being the killer. I mean, what do you think of Lois? And and do you buy her relationship with her with her father, with her fiance and friend, uh, with Nick and Nora? Like, what do you think of her? I'll tell you right where I stopped uh, buying things. She gets shot in the heart in the hand, like shot in the arm, right? Yeah. Um, in the woods. So that's all fine. Where it starts to fall apart at the end for me is that she's locked in a bedroom. (laughs) That's how it that's the end is she's locked in a bedroom and while everything else plays out. And that feels like such a a terrible way to resolve the caper. Like there's no joke to it. There's it's not funny. Um, It's not mysterious or threatening. It is just we're going to take a character off the field so we don't have to think about them for a little bit while we're working with all these other characters. And I felt like that was a little bit cheap. Well, and also it's like, why is he doing that if not because 
he suspects her. Like it's, it's a strange thing to do at that point where suddenly you're kind of thrusting this suspicion onto this character that you might not have suspected already. And so that is potentially like giving it away because it's, it is an odd thing that he just kind of traps her in the bedroom until he needs her. Right. And so I, you know, how, what did I think of her generally? Like, I think she's fine. I think she's great. She's, I, I, I like that, you know, there is tension between her and her family. There is a lot of great tension buildup in the family dynamic and it's all fine. It's all fine. I don't know when, I don't remember, like, as I was watching it, when I called it, but I felt like I called it kind of, uh, you know, a little bit later in this movie than uh, the other one, just because it was more confusing, like I couldn't kind of pull it together. Um, and and so it was a it, it was a little bit um, it just was kind of empty calories. But I like her a lot. I like Virginia Gray. Uh, you know, I think she's wonderful. Well, it was an interesting story thread, though, because clearly, like it was a point in time where people were a little um like accusing a woman of murder seemed to be a bigger deal because as nick is kind of going through the process even his wife is like hey oh, slow down there nick you're saying some pretty awful things about her which you don't get that reaction when he's accusing uh, james stewart in the last film but in this film it's like whoa you're accusing a lady of this stuff you're crossing a line here and so that was an interesting element uh, to the story the fact that that there was that reaction at this time to the idea that a woman could be a killer. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I didn't, I didn't put that together. Uh, that, that is a, uh, that's a, a complicated screen relationship to actually be able to sell it. I, I didn't actually have any problems with that either. Like by the end of the movie, I was, I was bought into the way they were telling me they, he was kind of resolving the story. It didn't feel out of place at all. And it, that, that part at least felt earned. But again, I, you know, coming with a lot of baggage in having seen, you know, more women criminals on screen. Yeah, since then, right, right. You know, one element that I really just didn't care for is the element with the with the new nanny. Ruth Hussey plays the new nanny, and she's a fine actress. But, like, what a weird uh, thread to throw in as a possible red herring where we have her sneak out that first night when the colonel's killed, only to not show up again until the very end when she comes to apologize. I'm like, why this, it was just like such a lethargic attempt at some other mystery to be thrown into the story. Did you, did you think much of that storyline? The same motivation behind locking Lois in a, in the bedroom, that it was just like the lowest way to establish, uh, like the easiest route to establish intrigue is having her sneak off with that look on her face in the dark, looking back over her shoulder as she disappears into the night. And I honestly thought, I thought this was going to end up being my biggest complaint. As it was happening, as we neared the end of the movie, I thought, they're not, are they going to forget that she was there? <laughs> right, <laughs> it just feels right. like that's a thread we're not going to tug on until the last minute. Like, it just, it felt unresolved. Yeah, yeah. A little frustrating. So, I, yeah, I didn't care for that either. You're making me really not like this movie as much. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it's it's fine. It's a fine film. And again, yeah. Nick and Nora are just a delight and they have some great moments. Like I, I genuinely really enjoy the scene in the club where they they kind of end up uh, again. I don't know why the lights always get turned out when something happens. But as the fight starts with the strange eavesdropper, 
uh, the lights turn out, and suddenly Nick and Nora, when the lights come back on, they're on the dance floor. She's no longer with uh, the guy that she had been with, and they're just dancing. And it was like, oh, it was really cute. Like, there were some genuinely really cute moments throughout the film, but it just doesn't have the levels of laughs that the previous one did. And I just, I feel like I'm, I don't know if this is what we're in for for the rest of the series, or if this is just as we've said. Perhaps they were trying to do something that was a little easier for Powell at the time because of everything that he had been going through. So hard read on this one. It's a fine film. I just it doesn't stand up to the previous two. Absolutely. That's where I stand, too. Well, um, we will be right back. But first, our credits. Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Matan Govari, Oriel Novella, and Eli Kaplan. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. How to do it award season, Andy? Was this the biggest, most <laughs> uh, stunning entrant into the award circuit that year? You know, we've uh, we've talked about it even in our last show that this is a period of time where just there aren't a lot of awards out there. It's very minimal. The Oscars are out there. That may I, I don't know the history of all the rest of when they started, but I mean the Oscars may be one of the primary ones that was happening at this point in time. This one got nothing. Not a single nomination for anything. So I think people were just happy to see them back on screen. <laughs> that was their well, award. <laughs> you know, I think the award ended up taking, uh, you know, 70 years to actually pay back. And that award is us being able to mention Eddie Mannix again. Oh, yes, that's right. How to do it with the box office. Well, as you said, we are back celebrating the joys of the Eddie Mannix Ledger. Oh, I just love that guy and his detailed budget notes on MGM movies, I tell ya. Nick and Nora's next adventure cost $1,107,000, or nearly $20.4 in today's dollars. That is a definite increase from the last one. The movie opened November 17th, 1939, opposite Tower of London, starring Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff. This movie did well for itself, but it's 1939. That is a tough year to make a mark in the top ten. Which this didn't, but it did earn two million two hundred twenty-three thousand, or nearly forty-one million. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost two hundred thousand dollars. Again, a drop from the last one, but still a popular film. All right, so I'm I'm still trucking along with these movies. I like I said, I love these this couple so much that I'm able to forgive an awful lot. So here we are, third one in. I'm still on this train. I'm glad we're doing this still on this train me too i'm enjoying this the stories and yeah while this one didn't wow me especially after the second time where i was i didn't even remember having had previously watched it uh like until part way through i'm like yeah. oh yeah i had that's seen this one telling. like that's <laughs> very telling but i still it's still an easy thing to enjoy so there it sits well we'll be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie Shadow of the Thin Man. Oil 
boy. Wait till I tell the family I met Nick Charles and Mrs. Charles. This is Mrs. Charles, isn't it? Now, that's the way we check in at motels. No one will get a word out of me, Nick. It's okay, honey. Okay, let's go. Uh-uh. Mama goes home. Oh, Nicky, you know you click better when I'm around. Uh-huh. Not in a men's shower. I tell you what. You go home, cold cream that lovely face, slip into an exciting negligee. Yes? And I'll see you at breakfast. Smack him up or I'll blow you in two. Oh, don't shoot, Nicky. It's me. One thing about a murder case, if you just let people talk long enough, sooner or later, somebody spills the beans. Well, somebody has. Is it me? Yeah, Nick, is it her? Nick, who is it? I didn't go near the track that day, and I can prove it. And I haven't killed a jockey in weeks, really. Letterboxd, Andy, you know Letterboxd. Uh, Letterboxd is our favorite social network for movie lovers. Uh, you can keep all your reviews there, all your ratings. You can track your film diary. And if you fall in love with it like we have, you can uh, pay to remove ads and support the team uh, but that brings Letterbox to us. You can get a pro or patron membership with 20% off. All you have to do is use the discount code NEXTREEL at checkout, or we've made it easy. Just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxed. And you will be whisked over to the uh, to the purchase page with that 20 percent already cleaved off the total. Uh, so save you a few bucks. All right. What are you going to do for this movie, Andy? He's throwing the word cleave around. I know you just just cleave it right off. That's impressive. That's impressive. Sever, sever 20 percent <laughs> directly <laughs> from the limb. That's horrible. Just like slitting that dog's throat. Oh, the, oh yes, just exactly like that. Isn't everybody really excited to go get a letterbox membership now? <laughs> really doing it justice. All right. Remember American Psycho, everybody? We're going to do that thing. You're covered with plastic, and then you can get 20% off. <laughs> you got to cleave it somehow. Yeah. Yep. Something's got to come off. Um, for this film, you know, I, I walked into this conversation with, at a three and a half and a heart. And I, I feel like we've actually dropped my rating where I think I'm just going to give it three stars and a heart. That's where I will sit. Yeah, I'm I'm exactly there. The first two movies, I was a, a four star and a heart. And th- watching this movie, actually, and if you remember, I put a I, I put a bookmark in the last episode because I, there's a chance that that one will go up uh, from there for me. And part of that is because I want to see how the rest of these play out. So this one has definitely fallen. But uh, so I'm a four, four, three so far All right. for the series. But it's still if you look at IMDb, it's still a seven point four. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Handily uh, crests the six-star IMDb scale. People love Nick and Nora. I mean, they're great characters. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it stands the test of time. I'm on the Nick and Nora train. Yeah. Well, as Pete said, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxed to get your patron or pro membership. It does work for renewals as well. And you know what? We also have a membership where you get early access to all your shows. You get monthly member bonus episodes. You get extra content at the start and ends of your episodes. All sorts of great stuff. Uh, you can just go to thenextreel.com slash membership and you can learn about our own membership plans. So what did you think about 
another thin man. We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel in Discord where we will be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. Oh, man. Letterbox has reminded us of something that's really important that we didn't talk about. That's just kind of weird in this movie. Boy, did they. Yeah. Should we do it at the same time? Do you want to do it at the same time? <laughs> sure. One, two, three. <laughs> mommy. Drink every time William Powell calls Myrna Loy mommy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what was yours? Did I get, did I, did I jump too hard on your line? <laughs> No, I I wasn't reading my. Were we reading our reviews? Yeah, I was reading my review. I, was, I, I thought we were reviews. just saying mommy. I you, you threw. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I was so no. Confused. I did. I changed the rules All I said of the was game mommy. I, I thought we were it. letting where our direction went in our conversation. So well, I that's the mommy. truth. The, the bottom line is it's mommy. Yes, that he calls her mommy all the time, and it turns out all the reviews on Letterboxd are about mommy, <laughs> 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 and we didn't even mention it once. Oh, that's so funny. What was yours? Mine's a three-star by Amanda, who says, Nick called Nora mommy a million times, but we all know he meant MILF. (laughs) (laughs) Yours is better. Yours is absolutely better. (laughs) I'll take it. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, all on Audible. Our Train Spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 Train Spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. (laughs) 